Hello, everybody, and welcome to This Week in X, presented by Crushing Comics. We think comics are better when they're read together, especially X-Men comics. So we are here to read and discuss this week's X-Men comics with each other and also with you. There are two X-Men comic books out on the 6th of January, 2021, and that is Hellions number eight and X-Factor number six. So spoiler warning, we're gonna talk about these two issues thoroughly and anything that's happened in the history of X-Men is fair game, as are other events in the Marvel Universe. So that out of the way, I want to welcome my friends, my colleagues and co-hosts, Tyler and Harry. Tyler, let me uh, ask you, have you ever had or perhaps made an inadvisable call to an X? <laughs> um, not exactly an ex, but when I was when I first arrived to New York and um, I was doing my uh, grad school, I had a weird call one night, like in the middle of the night. I was woken up by the call, and it was one of my classmates, whom I thought was straight. And Ooh. he appeared, he sounded really drunk. And he's like, oh, you know, I love you. I really, really love you. And I was like, um, okay. Aww. And I was like, I, I have no idea where that came from. Just out of the I've, blue. Like, no. Yeah, and I have no idea why he said that. And I have no idea if he was just joking or calling me on a dare. That and doesn't sound like a joke. It doesn't joke. sound like that. But then Take it from me. he That's acted as if nothing happened the next day. So I was like, um, I was what like kind of, thoroughly confused. What kind of relationship did you have before that? Like what was like the friend level? Um, I think we were just um, normal friends. I mean, closer than classmates, but not like really good friends because we, I, have a, I have a very close clique in school. And the few of us always hang out together. So he's sort of like the, the um, uh, I don't know, outside of the clique, but closer than just normal classmates. And but have you ever seen enough. this person since grad school? No, because he lives in, I believe he lives in Pennsylvania now. Ah, or or well, New Jersey, near Pennsylvania. Girl. And he worked around there. <laughs> so, so I've never met him anymore. Everyone has their own stories going on at all times, and you never knew. <laughs> <laughs> so, how but, speak, but, speaking of, of having different stories for different people, do you have what do you do when you have someone in your life who just goes on and on and on? What what is going through your head while this person is still prattling and monologuing, not pointing any fingers to anybody who does that to you? <laughs> but <laughs> can't can't imagine. Uh, no, it's weirdly specific, but um, I think of Spider Man Two. I don't know why. It's a really weird one, but that's one of a movie I really liked when I saw it at the time. And I just think about, uh, yeah, like the the hospital scene in Spider Man Two or near the end, and just how cool those arms moved. It's I know that sounds very basic, but it's a very primal no. memory for me. <laughs> <I'm> just like <laughs> I at first thought you meant you just like replay the whole movie like in sequence. That I do that with Clue sometimes because I have it like memorized. But I I will just start replaying Clue for scene for scene. Yeah, and you just great movie. you just have this certain scene in. Spider-Man 2 and if somebody's yeah. going on too long you're like the arms were just animated beautiful <laughs> just the puppetry was amazing just man just Sam Raimi did a great job there anyway what's going on man great talking to you glad your wife's doing well and then we keep it moving <laughs> well anytime that I'm talking for more than 90 seconds consecutively and you now know we can we should do a pan and zoom, zoom in into Harry's just, and he's and thinking about Spider-Man 2 Doc Ock fighting Spider-Man yeah there we go <laughs> 
Wow. That's going to take me a while to recover from that. Okay. <laughs> Up first of our two issues this week is Hellions, number eight. So I think we can just do our lightning round, kind of first reaction off the cuff from the gut, and then we will get into discussing it a little bit more deeply. So Tyler, first reaction. Um, I, I think that um, this issue appears to be a really straight up fight issue. But seeded cleverly within within the within it is some stories that would definitely come into play, um, I think, in a larger way in the future. And this also happens to be the very first time I enjoyed um, Segovia's art, like completely, without any reservations or without any if, you know, what well, if only he has done this, I would have given it 100%. But in this issue, I can... Yeah, unreservedly give it 100%. Awesome. Like 100 out of 100. I really like wow. it. Wow. Yeah. That's great. How? I thought it was uh, just, I thought it was like the definition of solid. And I, I do not mean that in like a backhanded negative way. I just think this is the book operating very well and knows what it's doing. This is just like a good continuing chapter. I don't think it was as funny as the last issue, but I, I love the last issue so much that like, it's one of those things where this one doesn't quite compare, but yeah, like the, the, the art's really good and it, it raises some really interesting kind of plot points for the future. And it, it, it shades the, um, the council in a very interesting way, which I'm sure we'll get into. But yeah. I just I had a great time. It's a good book. I felt very similarly too. to me. This was like the definition of right there, you know, good, not quite great. Maybe. Uh, I th I think the fight beats were kind of similar to the fight beats from the opening arc with the Goblin Queen, so it didn't seem mm. as remarkably funny, but there was a lot of good material. It raised some really interesting questions. And, like, I can't be mad at it. It's kind of still the best book in the X-Men line, maybe. So yeah. I came away with some real positive feelings as well, and I think there's some really fun stuff to discuss. Yep. For sure. The first topic I want to dig into, maybe not the biggest one, but it kind of happens first, is Wild Child and Nanny. Right? The the battle starts and Wild Child and Natty just have this look and just run right past the monologuing <laughs> villain, which to me is really delightful, right? Like why do we too much monologue? talking. Too much talking. Well, the the best part is he had their balloons imposed on his monologuing balloons, <laughs> which is just I thought it was maybe like really a good. mistake at first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it happens twice this week. Yeah. Yeah. Next factor too. Yeah. I know. And let's just talk a minute. I mean, it was a great gag to begin with, but let's talk about the impact beneath it a little bit because it's more evidence that Nanny and and uh, Wild Child Wild are Child. not the same, and they actually acknowledge it to each other in dialogue this week, Tyler. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, towards the end of the issue, they were talking about each other. Like, um, was it towards the end, or oh, maybe somewhere mm -hmm. they were they were talking about like. Um, uh, the uh, Ameth isn't through with us yes. yet. This is really cool. This is just like good. Like this is taking like that crossover and it is interesting where they're going with it. And that isn't always the case with crossovers. So like, it's just funny that like this huge thing that actually has repercussions still with these characters. It's like, I'm, that was kind of the part I was the most invested in. Like, where is this going? Mm -hmm. And it's nice to kind of have that feeling with like this unexpected book. And in well, some ways, I think Helen's basically, um, you can actually read Helen's without reading the Ten of Swords crossover, including those chapters in the in the yeah. crossover and just read it through. And you, I mean, you get all the information that you need. 
And I think, again, just like with last time in Hellions with um, the cape, where we didn't expect, or maybe that was actually paid off in Excalibur, but yeah, it originated it uh, in Hellions with Sinister, and the cape paid off, and in the same way with these people, you know, dying in Amanth, it's paying off in this really intriguing way. Wild Child just is more of like an alpha, and that's a little bit of an easier thing to read, but Nanny... There's some really interesting things with Nanny. She's like a little bit more insane, a little bit more violent. And do we really think she would have, I mean, not to skip right to the end, but would she have really abducted this robot baby in the way that she does in this issue pre Amoth changeover? Is that normal Nanny behavior? Doesn't seem like it. Even no. though the motivation is very similar. And I think um, this... Um, um, super focused, super um, um, sharpened nanny would have taken that step. But maybe pre-resurrection, uh, um, you know, pre her death in Amanth, before she was like super focused before, um, before that, I think she might have just said that, oh, okay, this is not natural and um, I'm not even going to bother about this. Yeah, what's what's cool about it is, you know, before she was, you know, a bit more whimsical and kind of felt like along for the ride, and now she has this kind of in, intent, and you, you have all the these characters. Yeah, and, and you have these characters that are all. It's, uh, what this issue felt for me is that you're kind of realizing every single character kind of has their own thing going on that they're hiding from the rest of the group, and then Nanny now is like another character who's introducing her own thing into this this big mix, and it's just like getting more and more interesting as we go on. But you do see her intensity before, because remember that scene, which is my favorite scene in uh, Hold of the X-Line last year, where she basically go up to Sinister and threaten him. So, Sarah, like, yeah. you know, there, the intensity has always been there. It's just not, like, super focused. You know, that's not her primary focus right now. But right now, I think everything is just, like, basically sharpened to that point, And she's just doing this thing. It's, it's kind of cool that you have, I mean, when you say, oh, the character has been sharpened or honed, it's kind of like, well, what does that actually look like in practice? But no, they're actually showing these characters have become much more mission oriented or driven with their own kind yeah. of personal goals. It's, it's just kind of like making good on that, that odd kind of phrasing. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we first opened this book almost a year ago, uh, there was a question about how much it mattered to have these group of people together. They all seemed like throwaways. Why do we care about Empath? Why do we care about Grey Crow or especially Nanny, right? Like Wild Child. These are no, nobody's favorite. Somebody's favorite because X Twitter exists, but not <laughs> overwhelmingly. And it really does feel like they all have a place here now. And I'm showing up to see like what develops next. And so it's really fascinating to have that with Nanny. Like, what is she plotting now? And of course, still unspoken, what is Orphan Maker's deal and that yeah. he, he can't be exposed, not answered here in this issue. We do get a really interesting moment, which I want to use to bridge into the next topic of Empath in the fight tries to use his powers on Cameron Hodge, thinking he's human. Of course, Cameron Hodge has been through the revolving door of death many times in, in the course of the X-Men. And he does it. And he says, you're a robot. <laughs> Which is great. Um, but also it brings up this long running trope in X-Men comics about the degrees of difference between humanity and robots and also robots and mutants. You know, we've had the idea of like, are you a human or are you a robot with things like Karima Shapandra as the Omega Sentinel. And we've also had the ideas of if Sentinels can adapt, are they not mutant? And that's been played too. And this kind of whole confrontation 
exists on that same spectrum. And surprisingly, empath, who you would think would be useless in this fight, is the key to it. So what do we think about the idea that this Cameron Hodge, typically a mutant-hating bigot, back from X-Factor, original X-Factor days, turns out to just be another robot in this farce, Tyler? Um, I mean, I think it is... Um... Sort of. I mean, I actually forgot what happened to him after his head was being sliced off in Extinction Agenda. <laughs> because I remember him coming back in um, the Fallings, um, uh What was that uh, crossover? Fallings, uh Covenant? Covenants? Yeah. yeah. He's been I back remember him coming times, at least. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then I can't remember any other appearance after that. And I was like, okay, so this one, obviously, he's still um, infected with a techno-organic virus. And... I think um, the emerging AI and the techno-organic um, Cameron Hodge is um, is like fighting each other um, mm-hmm. because like right almost right from the beginning the robots is like questioning his his orders and he has to override them several times for them to be um, you know for them to become murderers. Mm. Harry? Harry, what do you think? Well, yeah, I was going to say earlier that, uh, Pierre, you, you said it first, but like, you know, Empath for once is, uh, you know, kind of useful or he has the closest thing this guy's going to get to a hero moment since he sucks so hard. But like, this is where the tables turn because of him. And that was kind of fun in the book. Um, you know, I, I don't have uh, a quarter as much history with this character, but I did find it interesting just like his invasive kind of programming conflicting with theirs and getting this whole like, little mini faction battle between uh ais uh in the middle of this um this super just this big fight scene basically yeah oh gosh i have so much i could say about that i want to keep it under control i've been having an interesting discussion (laughs) with folks and this will be reflected in our other discussion this week x factor about you know when you have a problematic character a character who's done things that you can't look at in the same way now do you rehabilitate them or do you acknowledge it right and so that's always the thing with dokken because mm-hmm. of what he's been used for. And Empath is the same. Like, I've been reading the yeah. 200s of X-Men, the 30s of New Mutants, and he basically uses his power um, to make Magneto send the New Mutants to Emma's Academy, and then Magneto's like, I'm going to kill him. And, I mean, <laughs> he, he's just constantly bad. And I really enjoyed that this series is not trying to rehabilitate him, but trying to show that, like, the Hellions have to rely on how unscrupulous he is. So without getting into a whole summit about if he's terrible and he should be canceled by the other characters or anything like that, his unscrupulousness um, of just barging into somebody's brain unbidden totally pays off for the team here because it re- makes this reveal, which I, you know, I think is really interesting. But then we get to the other side of that, which is the robots. I it kind of subverted my expectation. I would have thought the robots would have been like, one of us, one of us. But no, <laughs> when they realized the Cameron Hodder is just another robot, things took a turn. Was that what you expected in that moment? No, I mean, that's what this book <laughs> Not is at so all. good at. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> was... this book... Go on, Katara. No, no, go ahead. Well, this book just makes the different, the zigzag choice every time, and it kind of keeps you like not uncertain, but kind of like enjoying that where, you know, these two characters will run past the villain's speech. The villain will get turned away by the other robots and you're never quite sure what's going to happen next, which is like a fun feeling for a book of all these, uh, these, I don't want to say, you know, just these, these different characters, these uh, oddballs. Say, say what you're going to say. Throw away trash. What were you going to say? <laughs> I was going to say D-listers, but I know people D-list- like Havoc. I don't, I don't <laughs> think he's a D-lister to be clear. Don't cancel me. X yeah, people. Don't uh, yeah. All right. So, uh, <laughs> So we, yeah. so we get this weird, weird moment after that where the robots are like, 
thank you, mutant scum. <laughs> and we get this whole little we get this whole little mini arc of havoc being like, mutant scum is actually a mean thing to say, but I appreciate yeah. your gratitude. Which I tend to personally zone out a little bit on robot dialogue. Like yeah. sometimes I'm like, all right, great, like you know, whatever colon terminated, whatever colon accepted. Yeah. But this was genuinely funny. I think Wells leveraged the robot dialogue for some like really, really funny comedic moments here. I don't know. Was I the only one to- finding it hilarious? I enjoy that it's continuing the theme of AI showing affection and just being like obliterated shortly after. I think that's kind of fun. But uh, yeah, it was just cool. I, I This is a cool beat. What about you, Tyler? I mean, this this part, when I first read it, you, I, I laughed it off. And I was like, okay, they are like, you know, they, they are emerging. So they are a little bit childlike. And mm. then I went into the deep hole of like, looking at certain things that has been presented to us um, all the way from Hotspots. So so here, the, rob- the robot basically says the enemy of our enemy is our friends, mm. right? And then they are like, okay, you guys are friends, human scum. And then, I mean, mutant scum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the we robots try to push... mutant scum. Yeah. <laughs> and then they, they try to push themselves of humans' influences to make their own decision, right? And the end end result is that they decide that mutants are friends. And also, this issue shows very clearly that a self-aware AI is neutral when it has no human's influence, Mm. whatever. Like, even Clive, which is, has, you know, sinister influence. Yeah, it's it's not evil, right? (sighs) Like, it's just funny, but it's not evil. And then, you know, so, so therefore, you know, is it fair, I mean, can we conclude that it is the human influences that turn an AI evil? And if that's the case, it casts the way that Krakoa is targeting emerging self-aware AI actually in a pretty bad light. Because they are not taking that into consideration, Mm. right? So I'm not saying it's wrong outright. So let let me finish um, this because I'm really going down into a deep hole here. Because because Moira learns that in her past nine, li- nine, nine lives, um, especially in life seven, that the rise of the machine is all but inevitable. And that is when she, um, well, that's when she got radicalized. And then Apocalypse in life nine asked the question, why the machines are always pointed at mutants? Well, I mean, the answer is clearly presented here. Because the rise of the machine has always been in response of the humans to curb the rise of the mutants. You take that part away, the AI is practically neutral. And also here, this emerging AI basically says there is no statistical differences between humans and mutants. They are practically the same. The deviation is too small. So, so I mean, I, I thought this was, this was really interesting. And if we jump a little bit, to the end, where um, where there's this uh, child saviors quote, it says like fire AI is a discovery, not an invention, mm. and that is almost well, that is sort of like a little bit of a twist of what Moira said in House of X two. So it's kind of interesting thing here, and it also begs the question like, um, how much of child saviors thinking right now? is influenced by memories of Moira and how much of it is his own. Okay, I'm done. Wow. That's a really good <laughs> point. 
I wasn't thinking about Spider-Man 2. I was just considering I was just going to say, were you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I looked at it. I don't see how you could look at uh, the Quiet Council's kind of edict here regarding uh, AI as anything but morally gray at most. It, it's it's framed so bad. It doesn't seem, I mean, this, I don't look at this as like representative of all AI, but just the fact that this is a actual pure promising moment between these two new groups and then just immediately gets obliterated because of the uh, the virus is like, that's, you know, well, A, you know, Alex needs therapy and B, it's just showing that, you know, they, they, yeah, Charles Xavier is not like infallible in this at all. This is super murky, which is really yeah. interesting to me. Yeah, there's, wow. I, I want to unpack a lot of layers of that, but I want to make sure that it's just not me talking. So let's go one at a time. So first, Havoc, who has needed therapy since at, at least 1986. <laughs> uh Havoc is making friends while Quanon Psylocke slips away to kind of pull the trigger on this code insert. And Grey Crow is going to do it for her. And she's like, you you don't always have to be the killer. Great moment. And Mm -hmm. so she pulls the trigger. But there's this interesting cycle there, right? Where like Havoc's the big hero on the team, but he's kind of there because if I'm remembering correctly, Emma asked him to be there, or at least told him to still be there. Emma's on the council. And this protocol does come from the council, but... Psylocke is the one that's putting the the play into play, but Psylocke's more of an agent of Sinister, also on the council. And and we get this moment of the two of them working specifically at cross purposes, even though they both think they're carrying out the will of the council in their own way, which to me is, I think, one of the first examples that we've seen the inter-council um, conflict really played out by surrogates in another book. Uh, well, did, did that it, stick Alex- out at all? Alex got onto the onto Hellions initially. He volunteered himself in because right. he had this moment where he became the um uh you know the the inverted is that what they call or the axis right. the axis yeah. version of him right, and then um later on of course Emma says no you're not you're not leaving right, <laughs> you're not leaving quit, the team. and Emma won't yeah. let him quit yeah yeah but um I thought in this I mean in this issue I thought Quanon is like saying that oh this is from Charles Savior it's not from Sinister. Like, mm. And Sage is the one that um, sort of like, you know, um, created the virus and, 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 and put it in. Yeah, I, I kind of took it more as Xavier's kind of personal expression or kind of his orders. I, I, but, um, you know, it is interesting seeing that these figures are all starting to operate under different uh, camps within the Cancel's kind of uh, approaches towards this thing. I didn't think about it as deeply yeah. as you did, Peter, but um, it was cool. No, well, but it also says that, like, you know, uh, Quanon is basically um, sort of free agents or, you know, I mean, free agent for, like, two different sides of the, or two different quarters of the uh, council. That, that to me, is what I'm picking up on. And I want to point out the specific dialogue that she has when Grey Crow interrupts her. I'm silent with Krakoa. So that suggests Xavier, probably. Then she says, Magneto has given us a final task. Not one of the captains or commanders, but Magneto from the council. Hodge's Mm -hmm. machines are infected with his techno-organic virus and their evolving thinking. Sage, not on the council, but to Tyler's point, part of X-Force, part of security, thinks they're close to self-replication which is why she has connected them to the Krakoan service. So there's a couple of different layers into both of your points. No sinister anywhere that can be seen, which does kind of make her almost like the mercenary here, truly, which in a way is fun to have as an X-Men character. Like, we don't have a lot of characters who kind of 
will just do whatever they feel like is the best instruction. We have Wolverine who will kind of just go off and do whatever he's going to do. But I'm kind of intrigued by the idea, like, is she going to have to go back and justify this to Sinister? It's really fascinating to me. No, it is, and and I think we are beginning to see a little bit of Quanan's um, characterization coming out that is sort of slightly different from um, Betsy. Right, this because, is not a Betsy move. Yeah. No. So I think that's always a good thing because, you know, I mean, she is, I mean, the visual thing is that you keep thinking she's Betsy. She's thinking she's Betsy, right? But you have to, but, you know, I mean, Wells basically um, tried to establish her as like, no, I'm not the same person and uh, my motivations are different. And, um, you know, and, and, and I mean, so I, I really don't want to dump on Fallen Angels, but at least this is not doing the easy is not taking the easy road you know it's not doing the the sort of like um trope thing with a uh, asian ninja and right you know oh, my, my honor yeah 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 so yeah. nothing of that sort <laughs> no, no, so it's honor. like totally different yeah. well so now i come to the the third and final thing that i wanted to talk about and i have to apologize in advance i am no replacement for a classics uh expert like Zach, who is part of the Hicksman Report family here. But you have to look at that final data page that lays out the rules behind what they did. It's titled the Hesiod Protocol. Hesiod was a poet and in the Greek tradition, and he is generally seen as the first poet in to regard himself, I'm quoting here, as an individual persona with an active role to play in his subject. So before then, poets kind of were just retelling something. Hesiod actually makes himself a part of the retelling, which is a really fascinating thing to be calling your protocol about if AI has gotten too far down the path um, to and that you have to poison the seed to fell the tree. But then to bring it back around to Tyler, and then I want to hear if the two of you have anything to say about it, you have this quote from Xavier, which is flavoring it even more because it's clearly about Prometheus, right? Like fire yeah. isn't made, it's brought. And it's this idea that you have to um, you have to monitor who gets the fire, which of course ties it into a lot of things that happened with Mother Mold and House of X and Powers of X and creates this greater fabric that they're not anti-AI, but they're anti-AI that can grow to harm them. But then can you extrapolate backwards and say, well, that makes us anti-all AI. We've seen Sentinels in the past say, turn against humans to be like, well, humans beget mutants, so we're, can, we can kill humans too. Yeah. This feels like the reflexive version of that. Like, well, AI can beget anti-mutant uncontrolled sentiment, so maybe we're actually going to judge each AI one by one and find them all wanting. Thoughts? I mean, that's the thing that 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 is um, inherently contradictory, right? Because... It, it says that AI is not a discovery. Uh, it's a discovery and not an invention. Mm. So in that case, how are you going to put out all the ambles? Right. And if you are, and if you start putting out ambles, um, the other AIs, the other emerging AIs, is going to start viewing you as the villain. Right. There's because no you're vacuum. To, you, yeah. you you're putting out fires where every fire is aware of all the other fires it's not exactly. it's not just putting out fires and, and, it's a, and i mean yeah even if they don't know it initially like potentially they would know they'll be like oh okay this is happening and with that and with the action there will of course be the reaction mm. which is like you know you are the enemy as Maybe opposed just... to right here where you know basically have is like teaching the baby ai's like 
No, we are friends. No, don't use scum. You know, it's just like when you're teaching your kids, yeah, your kids hear you say a bad word. You're like, no, 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 don't use that bad word. Not now. You know, later on when you grow up and you learn the meaning of it and you want right. to use it, yes, but don't use it now. You can, it'd be interesting to see kind of like in, kind of following this down the line, there's some kind of AI that looks at the mutants as almost like a boogeyman that's been kind of taking out these these AIs. I think just the the Xavier, this his the, the protocol here just seems not doomed to fail, but definitely like a fighting a losing battle here where, you know, you can, you can't, as you said, if you put, you can't put out every ember, it's going to, something's going to respond in kind. And it just feels like it feels doomed. That's kind of how I felt when I was reading it, reading it. Like this is not going to go where you want it to go, which is cool. Yeah, well, an awful lot of deep stuff couched within a, a pretty funny confrontation between the robots and Havoc, and I think it's genuinely disturbing when they all fall to the ground yeah. spouting the Krakoan code. Tyler, what does the Krakoan code say when they're all malfunctioning? My data banks. <laughs> That's what they say. I, I was joking earlier, but but seriously, the moment where the, the robots all start to implode and you see Havoc's face of just like, pain or just like horror like that's a that's an amazing moment like the the segovia really gets that across really well exactly it's it's, and then, it's good and then you just look at you know the posture at the end of gray curl Quanlin, and alex all kind plane. of individually contending with what, yeah the part that what they, they did in it. exactly and as nanny monologues i could make him smile uh <laughs> so any <laughs> Final departing thoughts on this Hellions issue, Tyler? Um, not really. I think I already went down the deep hole earlier. I mean, the, the more we've talked about it, the more I like this issue more. I mean, it's the kind of thing where it's like, it's not the best issue, but it's still like one of the best series. And it, it, you can kind of forget like the level of quality it's operating on until you take some time to think and talk about it. This is just like... It's just the stuff this this book is juggling without it feeling like it's juggling anything and being really interesting while funny. It's like, yeah, it's this book's amazing. Yeah. No, I mean yeah. I, I agree. Like the ease yeah. of the ease of yeah. um Wells like juggling different character moments and um potentially different like plot plots, um future plots, you know, whatever. It it, it is really good. Mm. Sorry, Peter, I interrupted you. No, it's fine. I, I was just going to say, this is where sometimes judging issue by issue can fail you a little bit. Because we were saying at the beginning, you know, this is good, not great, or great, not excellent. But it, it is excellent. It's carrying through every theme that we it's... like about this story. And, and we just have to accept at this point that individual issues are part of an arc. So, you know, mm -hmm. as an individual issue, is it our favorite issue we've read in the last year of X-Men? No. Is it continuing what might be the most weirdly, transgressively exciting <laughs> X-Men series right now? Yeah, yes. yeah, still it totally <laughs> is. And so that's really exciting to me. Let's get started with X-Factor number six with just our lightning round from the gut reactions. Tyler. Um, I enjoyed this issue, but not as much as last issue. Um, I think for me, the um, the main story, the A-plot, um, did not quite capture my attention, but the various characters' moments and the side plots were actually more interesting or very interesting to me. Um, I mean, Beldion continues to deliver stellar work on the arts here. And um, I mean, you know, it, it is by no means a bad book. You know, if last issue was A+, this is A. Harry. 
I love this. Uh, this is my favorite X book right now by far. Uh, this just this whole issue just made me happy, uh, both with its structure, kind of really committing to the um, the detective and investigating theme of the book, uh, and just all the tiny interactions and Baldion's art. Just every little bit uh, worked worked really well for me. So I'm going to be uh, the de facto cheerleader of this issue. Well, you and I are going to fight because I'm going to be the de facto cheerleader of this issue. <laughs> uh, I'm obsessed with this. I think it is so pitch perfect. I've been reading a lot of, I'm in mid-1986 in my full X-Men reread with the kid. And reading this issue, the absolute density in every panel of people interacting with each other, bouncing off of each other. This is what X-Men was about for so long that made so many people love X-Men. And Leah Williams understands it perfectly. And I think that we've done that thing that she does on many series where we've gotten past the initial point where it's just like funny hee-haw gags, which I get now is her way of kind of establishing the, their personalities. And now we're at the point where I just feel constant delivery on all of them developing. It's a big cast and they really all feel addressed. And I would agree that Baldion just continues to move up my list of favorites. Maybe that's a good place to start just because there's so much to talk about in this issue. Baldion, who we've talked about pre previously as being occasionally a little bit um, gawky in the way he draws characters. I feel like the expressions here were so revealing, so personalized to each of the characters. He did so much with each of them that uh, I was I just couldn't get enough. Mm -hmm. No, I completely a... agree. And there was this page um, towards the end of the issue, which actually was like, oh my God, this is like J.H. Williams' level of like... Um, uh, uh, designing panels because you know it has this sirens sirens hair was like doing all the uh, panel division oh yeah uh, I so it was cool. so good I did a double take like is that like I was like Baldion really like I, I couldn't even believe <laughs> that layout was coming from him and it just shows how much range he has mm-hmm yeah, he's quickly becoming one of my favorite superhero artists right now. Uh, for me, like just while well, we're if we're talking faces and what have you, uh, I think he does amazing work with uh, Eye Boy, who's yeah. just a super happy. And there's there's a there's a page where you know he's like make it's like a jokey page where he puts on this headband and has this expression, but there's like such this like weird power and energy to it. It's such a good way to end the page and end that scene. It just like that's the thing I keep thinking of is how well he depicts all of these different levels of energy and emotions and intensity and just they're all different and they're all just done so well. And the other thing that I feel like we have to comment upon, or at least I do, is Israel Silva's colors, which we've talked about in the past. But I think with Baldion, there you can go wrongly coloring him because of the way he does his characters. If it's too flat, it just feels like a cartoon that doesn't really have depth. And if you go too shiny or too bright or put too much of a sheen on them, they start to kind of just feel like these weird misshapen dolls. And I think there's a middle ground here that Silva strikes perfectly where he, he does really good depth. I'm looking at the beginning of their investigation on the ground where there's the panel of them kind of looking under the, the body bag. And Silva does this really brilliant edge lighting on each of their hair to kind of distinguish the stack of them. And he just makes sure that none of them is so defined by their light that it's all kind of like reflection. Every one of them has their own amount of depth and it kind of gives their own skin tones definition and that's just it's what i'm really looking for i really like a really saturated colorist to begin with but i just think there's a lot of really clever things being done here with skin tone with edge lighting to make people stand out without just doing the every surface is glossy and reflective thing that so many modern colorists get stuck doing 
Nope. Oh, this book looks so good. <laughs> so he another much more obvious uh, than that, but like his his uh, depiction of uh, super speed or just hyperspeed with with uh, North Star is just very very cool. It's just like this moving blur that's always like mid motion, but it feels like a different depiction of that than you see with with other other artists because it's not as like uh, sharp, I guess, if that would make sense. But it, it just it feels more more. Um, in the moment. If you so will. is in this case, is it Belion's art or is it the colorist who did the or the I mean I think it's um, got a collaboration of the two. Yeah. I mean Yeah. Because because I think both have to work together for that to for that image to work, right? Because I think sure. Belion's uh ink his own work. Yeah. He's the artist. So he ink his own work. Well, and so much, so much of the time when you see a motion blur, like if we're on the first or second page and we see him running around while he's speaking on the phone, you, you get the a digital motion blur of a figure, right? Like it's a figure that clearly was somewhere in the kind of like ghosted edge of the part of the yeah. back, or maybe the penciler even did that. But this is very different, and that's what's so striking about it, that if you look at the edge that's coming off of him, it's like color separated, but it also kind of looks like a sound wave, which almost like implies how quickly he's moving around. There's this kind of like... To sounds to it uh, and then it's colored almost so that it's like a negative impression of itself and it's just really different it reminds me of some of the work we've seen on daredevil where different artists kind of do different versions of his blind sight this is just a really neat different version of super speed yeah. that um was was fun yeah, I was reading it and I, I just literally, I mean, I like I don't feel like I've seen this power depicted like this before. And I don't know how often you get that feeling when you're reading superhero comics. It just felt new, which I was like, this is amazing. This is awesome. Like, this book is really good. Well, I'm well talking and about, he was, oh, he's also playing with a lot of different perspective here, right? You have a shot of like right from the top in the healing gardens. And then there's this shot from the bottom of the um, boneyard. And um, I mean, he's playing with camera angles here, like throughout this issue, and it works really, really well. And if you recall, we complimented him the last time around in the way he beautifully echoed the data page of the Boneyard on the page in his layout, and, and even more of that here. So I want to talk about something else new, but I want to transition us to talking to the story a little bit. Mm -hmm. So the first chunk here is that they're investigating another death of Sirens, right? She died at the end of the last issue, but we don't pick up there. That's already been investigated. She's already been revived. It's like a week later now, and yeah. she's dead again, and X-Factor goes to investigate it. And we get this really for me, delightful sequence of them trying to interact with the human crime scene investigators. But we get to see how each one of them is like the perfect detective in their own way, uh. including uh, talking about brilliant layouts, probably the best version I've seen anybody do of iBoy's powers, where it shows him seeing the person he's talking to, but then all of the details around him in this kind of almost multicellular explosion of circles yeah. to mirror the way that it must seem like visual input comes into his brain. And it just, he's one of these characters that could be so dorky and, and, and goofy, but it sold it to me so hard. And again, through the combination of Williams writing a really clever script of him saying, I can see anything. What do you want me to see? Dust mites? Well, what do they look like? I'm not sure. And then Baldion perfectly finding the way to show us what that feels like in the art. Yeah, I think this is the first time um, we see a visualization of like um, Eyeboy's uh, power. And uh, I mean, I have to say, this is really cool. 
and he i probably was introduced in Jer- jason aaron's wolverine the x-men yeah and i i like that run a lot but uh you know i is not really a super impactful part of it so this this series I'm like wow they're really making good on this character's i, I guess potential I and mean, you're really making some cool stuff out of this somewhat kind of jokey character from the other book it's just mm-hmm. uh yeah but there's well, he's still also- jokey here yeah he's still funny <laughs> oh he is but he is but he's joke. <laughs> He has a function. Yeah, he is doing things. Like yeah. I, I love that this book is really committing to the fact that it is a an investigative detective kind of you know you know group or agency. You know yeah. there are other you know I'm not I'm not throwing shade on Marauders. That book's great, but like we haven't had a lot of pirate stuff in Marauders for a long time. And this book is committing to to its central theme, which is like we are investigating mutant deaths, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I want to leap ahead to so many things, but I want to close out this opening <laughs> part. So. I think part of what's so intriguing to me is, so iBoy, natural detective. Rachel, natural detective, right? Because she's got, you know, she's not only a psychic, but she can detect emotions and things. And this is made explicit later in panels, but let's just yeah. stick with this opening part. But here you have Prodigy, who's kind of being that prodigy, prodigal kid, who's like, I could do all of this. Can you just let me do this? Can I do this? And putting Northstar in the position of having to respond to it when Northstar is that kid. <laughs> like through North Star's entire history, he's the always the one who's like, can we speed it up? Can we do it a different way? Can we this? And Leah Williams, to her credit, brilliantly flips that on his head. And you see the puzzlement on North Star's face from Baldion as he's like, is this what I'm like? And he keeps <laughs> switching to French as if that's going to throw Prodigy off. Or no. is he just code switching? And Prodigy's like, yes, yes, I understand French. Yeah. And it's just a great bit. It's It's just such a good bit. And it sort of speaks. I mean, that's that that happens a bit later. But this is a, um, they are forming a family unit within X Factor. Yes, and that is what is so wonderful about this issue and the interactions in general. I mean, we open the issue with them having breakfast, which is yeah. like you know, in the past, Claremont would be like baseball game. <laughs> or practice session in the danger room. But in this era, I mean, in docks, in rocks, we are having mealtime as a family, as a bonding time. You know, you have the summer's um, dinner with Wolverine. You have um, the new mutants having breakfast, drinking drinking lots and lots of coffee. And you have X Factor here having breakfast, you know, and, and iBoy asking uh, Prodigy to read <laughs> random stuff. What a great little moment that was. Uh, it's like, your voice. I just love your voice. And you almost have to be like, is it flirting? Or is it just this genuine yeah. moment between two friends where he's like, no, really? And it, it kind of doesn't matter. It's just such a great, stupid just... little detail that we will always remember that Prodigy is a really beautiful reading voice. Like, Leah Williams gave us that. Now we I love it. that. Yeah. I love that so much. And to Tower's point, yeah, I just love that this book is also embracing this run, this, this status quo's uh, just emphasis on family and kind of mm-hmm. warmth and just having these characters just bond in ways you don't usually get because they're being attacked by robots or whatever, you know, it's just, it's nice. <laughs> yeah. And Prodigy is now forever going to sound like the Allstate guy. <laughs> <laughs> ah, what's his name? No, Dennis, I'll, I'll H- Dennis Haysberg. Dennis Haysberg, that's right. You, yeah. you got it, man. I Googled it so, okay. <laughs> because I don't know his name. I remember him as the Allstate guy or the pres- the first black president in 24. <laughs> oh, he's on that 24. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so we get this interesting moment when they get back from the investigations where Prodigy wants to stand close enough to Celia Rise 
to kind of absorb all of her autopsy knowledge. I have a lot to say about that scene, but Mm. it rolls into this concept, again, that Prodigy's pushing. He wants to establish their own body garden. Yeah. (laughs) It's so crazy. It's It's such a strange beat in the middle, and there's so many things happening. I don't know. It's kind of morbid, right? It is morbid. It's bizarre. It's just like, (laughs) you want to do what? (laughs) But it's it's a good point. It's like, we've never actually considered, like, do the mutants, their bodies decay differently? Is there something here? Like, this book just knocks out of the park with these interesting little side avenues and tangents and, like, interesting bits that you just consider. And this is like a really good example of that. So I have a question about Prodigy's power now. Does he remember them or is it transient? He always, he retains them permanently, but I don't know if he would have retained permanently things that he knew before his resurrection. Right. When he lost his power, he the whole bit was he's still an expert in all the things he was already expert in. And that's because the cuckoos basically unlocked his fullest, his, his, his block. So, so when they resurrect him, did they unlock that block too? Or, you know, remember that story? Um, I mean, I remember because I just read it, like, you know, last week. Um, the one where um, Emma said, you want to have the block removed? I'll remove this. And, she, and they play out a what-if scenario of mm. him remembering everything, every powers or whatever that he has, well, every knowledge that he learns. Part of the answer to that question might include how he died and came back we get a little moment of that here where he's like i just died around the same time you know loa and blindfold did (laughs) and and they're like "Mm -mm." so i i think that it's meant to be a mystery but i Mm. i you know comparing this i i don't want to compare comic against comic so i won't but just in in two we get two pages in the mortuary where we get a really good redefinition of his power for people who maybe don't understand and then we get two pages talking about this body graveyard but instead of just being some big panels establishing people saying yes no we get this fully formed cogent argument where he actually brings people along to his side i can see some readers saying like this was kind of a waste two pages about mutant decomposition really but like there's yeah. just so much there. And even though Prodigy is the main one speaking, we get to see through other people's faces that he's not just working on persuading North Star, he's working on persuading everyone. Yeah. Well, and, uh, that's great. I, mean, I, yeah. I, I, just, I just love that, that scene because um, North Star is, I mean, over here, you know, his husband is basically saying, well, He's becoming a dad. <laughs> it's one of he the is. Ah, it's yeah. one of the best faces in the book. It's such a beautiful little like amused moment. It's it's so good. Now we come uh, to Siren re-entering the scene. They verify that she was definitely dead again. And so now she's been revived. Of course, a classic X Factor member from Peter David's run. And mm-hmm. the team is interrogating her. And there's so many wonderful layers here. Before I even kind of define it, I want to turn it over to you because there's so many things to pick apart. What did you think about this scene with Siren and the whole cast before she breaks away with Polaris? Harry? I just thought it was really interesting that we fi- we've got a book where a character is dying so frequently and kind of delving into that. And, you know, I, I really liked uh, Peter David's X Factor, so I just enjoyed having this character back and reading her again. But, like, yeah, it's, like, genuinely interesting. Like, I... I was very invested in seeing what happened next. And it's it's very funny that they keep pulling her away from the window so she doesn't see the dead bodies. That's a great beat. It's just like, don't go over there. Stay over here. Well, and this is, I mean, um, 
this is also the second part, second overlapping panel that we saw this week. Like we saw yes. an overlapping yeah. panel. Of, in... You mean the word balloons overlap? Yeah, the word balloons. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, overlapping word balloons. So um, <laughs> I mean we 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 saw um uh, uh Aurora wearing the X Factor uniform in Excalibur. And mm-hmm. she's wearing it here now. And I just love that connective tissues between issues. They don't have to say anything. It's just like, you know, she's now part of the team and she's now part of the family. And I mean, it's, it, I, 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 I love that. And I also love like, you know, this is clearly a continuation of a story that Peter David establishes um, as a status quo for uh, Teresa. Because, you and know, Williams everyone... has read it and she has taken some notes. Yes. Like she perfectly lines this up with where we left these characters, yep. Lorna and, and Teresa, off when they were last together. Exactly. And e- even in the opening quote, right, there was this star besides Siren and all redacted. But we all know, I mean, everyone who has read The X Factor know what that re- redacted, you know, name is. Is I mean, it's, it's Morgan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, look, we've come to the part that almost happens in almost every episode where I have a scene where I have three distinct things to say about it. So let me try to do it in an efficient way. So this siren scene, again, only about two and a half pages. Super fascinating because there's three distinct things happening. One, Harry already addressed, which is just the gaggy, funny thing of keeping her away from the window. Doesn't really matter. She's been the Morgan. Is that she? Is she going to be that upset by the dead bodies? But the book kind of waves hands that it's not only that she might be upset, but let's not even talk about this with anybody yet. And like, <laughs> let, let's not even bring it up. And it's it's funny. It's kind of like a rule of threes things. It happens once. And then they're like, she's coming back this way because Williams is funny. So that's one thing which we've already talked about. But here's the thing I found so interesting. We have Siren being like, we were X Factor. What are you? Why are you X Factor? But mm. then it has this X Factor basically rebutting y'all were what investigating. You were terrible at investigating. <laughs> we're so much better at this than you are. And we get this brilliant, brilliant page from Baldion of them all knocked back to their single distinct color, talking yeah. about how each one of them is a perfect detective. Uh, just. But to get there, we had to get through the scene to see Siren's objections because every one of them noticed something different about her objections. And it's one of those seeds, scenes that you can go back and reread because the end of the scene brings you back to the beginning of the scene. So not only is the scene itself dense, but it actually rewards you for reading it closely and for rereading it because you can go back and see how Siren revealed these things to each one of the members. That to me is, that is peak comic making like when i say i want x-men to be the best comics that i read every given week this is what i'm looking for and then we superimpose peter trying to fling the masterwork last week here you know density of plot density of yeah. ideas density mm-hmm. of conceptual s- stuff density of character work and that's gags. Art. Use visual storytelling to get that all across while they're doing everything else. Like yeah. using color to kind of get more of that character across. You know, and I, I do love that this char- this team is quietly stacked. Like each one of these people are great at what they do. Yeah, that's cool. Prodigy is like I can do everything that you guys do. <laughs> Prodigy's just an all man. He's just he's he can do whatever. You just give him whatever he's got to do. He'll get it done. But then my final comment on this scene before we move it on, which I we could have done a half hour on this scene as far as I'm concerned. Uh, mm-hmm. Baldion's art of Siren, just again, a totally other level. I thought Chris Anka dropped by 
to do a couple of pages. The scene where she's her brows are furrowed and then she screams, that is not yeah. like a normal Baldion face. And it shows that his range is just increasing and that he can use different styles to differentiate these characters. It would have been really easy for Teresa to look a lot like Rachel, you know, like red hair, you know, those mm -hmm. kind of fair features. And yet she never once looks like Rachel in the sequence. And the Silva's coloring of how vivid he makes her costume and the way that he gets her hair to stand out against it and the way she almost pops off the background against all the different backgrounds and then the use of her sonic power. Like, they just went off. And then to follow that up with that J.H. Williams III-esque page that's coming two pages from now. Yeah. I mean, the art, they just went off on art in this issue. That's that. I'm done. It's, <laughs> I, I agree. It looks incredible. It's such a good-looking book. I mean, there's nothing, nothing more to add. I mean, it's just like, just look at the changes in Lorna's face and Teresa's face in these, like, uh, sequence, these few pages, you know, and you can see the change. No word balloons, and you can see the change. The, and, the only, and that is what is so brilliant about this whole thing. Uh, Teresa looks so mad in that page. I was one, maybe she, maybe she is, but I was wondering if she's been possessed by an evil spirit. I was like, you she, like look so mad. <laughs> well, she, let's talk about well, it. Is. I mean, what? Where yeah. do we end up here? What is her? Why does she keep dying? What is her motivation for hypnotizing Lorna to leave her alone? And what is the significance of her being followed by this flock of ravens or crows? At the end, is she full on Morgan or is there something else happening here? I don't know. I mean, the crows made a symbol in the sky and it is the Trinity um, uh, knot, which oh. I think when she first encountered a young lady, the young lady was wearing a necklace with that uh, Trinity knot. Wow. And she was, she was using wow, that geez, charm. <laughs> you are on it today. <laughs> <laughs> she was using that charm to, 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 to call morgan you know and and so i mean so the last page clearly established that this is morgan and the birds flying uh i guess because they're all black they're supposed to be curls or ravens uh -huh. and that is also part of um morgan's um you know uh i wouldn't say ammo but like that's what symbolizes her because remember i think when when um i think in in x factor when um siren basically say uh Siren basically was told to like you know her powers has to do with the ravens kill the ravens and you you will defeat her mm. so yeah so 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 these all things this last page basically ties in to the fact that I mean or basically says this is not uh, Teresa this is Morgan and I think and Morgan in X Factor wanted to die she's just tired of living like she's she's like I, I don't want to live anymore just kill me or something yeah. like that. Or, or she has been switching bodies quite a few times. So I, I'm not 100% sure of her motivation here. But, um, like, you know, is she did she just want to die and not get resurrected? And if she gets resurrected, why is she being resurrected instead of Theresa? Mm. Because, you know, the five has something to do with this, right? And so I think that is the question mark. Like, what what is happening here? And just, oh, wow. It... it it's fascinating to me because this book, again, there's enough interfamily casual stuff happening that I'm ready to come back just for that. 
but now we have a great hook. And it's really similar yeah. to Hellions this week in that there's this great hook about what's going on with Teresa. There was a great hook there about AI and Nanny, you know, stealing the robot baby. And um, But there's also just the team dynamics. And I, I mean, I cannot wait. for. It seems unfair that these two books come out the same week as each other because I don't know if I care about any of the other X-Men titles that are going to come is, out between uh, the next two issues of this. Like, I want the next issue of X-Factor this very moment. With yeah. for not just for story reasons, for art reasons too. I want. I basically want to see Balian and Silva do, drawing and coloring Siren for a full twenty pages next issue. Give me more. Like, yep. Yeah, I, I love that I ending because it's it's both it's introducing uh, deception and kind of like two faced machinations into this char- cast of characters, which I just feel like they're going to crush it at next issue. <laughs> it's going to be very good. But then also, I like that it's it's kind of like. And correct me if I'm wrong, I can't remember, like, this is like, it's mutant on mutant conflict, but without resorting to actual violence, which they've still right. stayed away from. So it's kind of like introducing yep. drama on the island without, like, breaking that cardinal rule, which I think was kind of kind of neat. Mm, there, there isn't any cardinal rule against uh, violence yeah, against mutants. Figure, figure, <laughs> figure of speech. Yeah. <laughs> it's not one of the, the cardinals. Yeah, yeah, it's not. So having been through this pretty thoroughly, I still think there's a hundred other moments we could talk about. One last go round. Anything else you want to talk about from this issue, Tyler? Yes. Who is Tommy in the messages exchange between oh, like from New Avengers? Speed, yeah, yeah, it's speed, yeah. We or oh, team Young yeah. Avengers. Yeah. Young Avengers. Young Avengers. I have not yeah. read Young, Young Avengers. Avengers. That's why. Oh, it's so good. Uh, so Prodigy befriends Speed and Gillen's run of yeah. Young Avengers, yep. I yep. want to yep. say. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like a it's like a break issue between uh, McKelvey's arcs and Young Avengers and they have like a bond. Uh, that's oh. actually kind of the most prodigy I've read is in Young Avengers. But, um, because because I thought yeah. it was this re- that rainbow hair Moloch that died during Mutant Masca. Oh man, <laughs> you're always ready for deep I so wish it was that instead. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was like, why is that Moloch calling him? I was like... No. This is, the, I mean, this is the kind of book that's like, you know, I think a lot of these X books are, are very good and you just kind of enjoy them passively sometimes. Uh, but not to throw shit at Excalibur, but something like that. And then this is a book that's just like firing, just doing so much so well. Like I had such a great time reading it. Like it's just, it is another level. It, it just is. Well, the final thing I want to come back to is the use of Dokken here. And I talked about it a little bit earlier, but... Here's a character who has been massively a problem if we take him for all of his past deeds, right? So you kind of have two options. You totally wash that and be like, that wasn't me, I was possessed, it was the Shadow King or whatever. Or you continue to use him in a way that doesn't totally redeem him and makes you still kind of threatened by or nervous of him. And I think that Williams is walking a tightrope with that right now because she can't make him too romantic. A certain number of fans won't respond to that well. Now, of course, there's characters throughout the history of Marvel Comics and all comics who've done reprehensible things and still get to be heroes. Namor drowned most of New York in the 1940s. And then again, Wakanda in 2012. But we still are allowed to see Namor as a hero sometimes, not to, you know, compare atrocities. 
But I just feel like Leo Williams is being very careful to never say that Dakin didn't do all of the child murdering and sexual assaulting that he used to do. And she's not saying that he's just a romantic hunk. She's letting him linger in the background of these scenes. She's let, she's playing the connection he has with Aurora and hardly anybody else. And um, it just feels like a, a fuse that's lit that eventually we're going to have to contend with more. He's not just here just to kind of growl at people occasionally. There's a reason she's using him. And so it could go bad. It could go good. I don't know. And I think it's going to be several issues before we do. But right now, I'm really appreciating that she's resisting the urge to just turn him into a full-fledged hunk. She's still playing him on that tightrope of creepiness. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. I agree. I, don't, wow. I, I did not think of it that way, but I agree. <laughs> I, I do. I do like that they haven't gone full in on just, oh man, Dawkins so hot. We, he's like the, the hunk of the book. It is like a more nuanced thing than that. Uh, I kind of forgot about all those atrocities, but uh, in Dawkins case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's going to be interesting. I feel like it's more lean toward rehabilitation. Uh, that's my personal prediction. We'll see but, though. Like yeah. it doesn't, who, who knows? We haven't really had him comment on the subject too much yet. And to that point, Baldian is drawing him so hunky that you can feel the visceral discomfort that some fans and readers are having with him because he looks hot. And for people who think that, you know, cart comic art is hot to them, they're like having trouble reconciling that in the same way that a garbage human being in the real world who is hot gives us funny feelings. Uh, and I, I just think it's all very clever. That's it for our discussion this week. Two issues that I think on the whole we had almost all positive thoughts on, which is a nice feeling to have. Great way to start out a new year. And the second time it happened. This is the second time like these two these two titles come out and we were both positive on like two issues. It's almost unfair like just how good this week of comics is compared to the subsequent ones, which has good moments and good books to be sure, but this is just like a this is something else. Different level. Well, next week's going to be an adventure because currently on the schedule, as it's written in the book, is Marauders 17. And we know we have some big Marauders fans on the uh, on the group here. And Sword Number 2, which split opinions a little bit between uh. us. So can next week kind of sustain our good energy about the X-Men line here at the top of 20. 21. And just one final reminder, um, this is a, a roving panel of ex-friends. And so in the next couple of weeks or months, you might see uh, some returns of some faces that you like. You might see a few of us dip out for a little while, but that is just the part of what we are as Christian Comics. We're just here to make sure that we're reading X-Men together. So uh, don't despair if some of our favorite friends and colleagues are not here the next couple of episodes. They will certainly be back in the future. I think that's all for this week. For myself, for do Tyler, it. for Harry, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you will subscribe and continue to keep up with X-Men and other comic book chat with us because Harry and I are cooking up something good right now that's not <laughs> oh, X-Men. Yeah. So please oh, yeah. subscribe and stay tuned to Crushing Comics. Be well. Bye. <laughs>